This is John 9, 13 through 41. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But, now he, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple? We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Good morning. I thought I would do a pop quiz from last week to start the sermon off. Uh, there was two A's that Omar uh, kind of discussed this last week. Can you guys, uh, I know there's probably a bunch of A's, but two big A's. What did we, uh, what did he talk about last week? Anybody? Abiding. Okay. What's another one? Antichrist. So abiding and antichrist. I'm not going to go and preach a whole sermon on the antichrist, but I am going to preach a sermon about abiding because a, a lot of times we're so focused on the the things of the world, the antichrists of the world, that we're, we're not abiding. So I kind of wanted to start off um, our sermon today kind of talking about the difference between curiosity and certainty. And the name of the, the sermon is A Curious Faith, Godly Deconstruction. So I am going to talk about deconstruction. I heard you guys, when Omar said deconstruction last week, you're like, some of you are like, oh no, it's deconstruction. I'm afraid of that. We'll kind of hopefully dispel some of, those, uh, some of those myths. But I wanted to look first at the definition of curiosity. And curiosity, the definition is a desire to know or an interest leading to inquiry. 
Of course, there's uh, examples of that uh, on the slide. Um, but desire to know and interest leading to inquiry. And then we have certainty. So certainty is something that is certain. That kind of seems very obvious. Usually you don't define the word with the word, but something that is certain and the quality or state of being certain, especially on the basis of evidence. There's many times in the church that uh, when a person is curious, when a Christian is curious and asking questions, that they're shamed. Uh, and the, we have elevated within the church the, the lack of doubts and the increase of certainty as a Christian virtue. And then you combine that with some of the abuses of the church when church leaders just say, follow me, whatever I do, j just follow me. I'm God's anointed, and you guys have probably experienced that in some of your churches as well. And then you have the blatant hypocrisy and abuse within the church, and that leads many in the church to go through a process of deconstruction. And then we fear that word. Uh, there's a quote here from an author that we'll talk a little bit more about later on in the sermon. Her name is Lori Ferguson Wilbert, and she says this. Who could really blame a person for walking away from a religion when it has been so intertwined with systems of greed, oppression, manipulation, and control? I get it. It often seems all of Christendom has forgotten the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Omar, I, everything at the end of the sermon, I'm just like, yes, thank you for putting the, the ball on the tee for me, because he's talking about shiny, happy people. He's talking about abuse in the church. So I'm just like, thank you for just going very short so I don't have to redo the sermon, because I was already thinking about doing this. But I also watch Shiny Happy People, uh, and Shiny Happy People, and a, among a lot of different documentaries, you have Shiny Happy People, and then the Hillsong, the kind of the secrets of Hillsong. And, the, and Shiny Happy People is about, you guys familiar with who Bill Gothard is? I know that some people are familiar with who Bill Gothard is. Even if you don't know the name, you've definitely been influenced, especially if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, as I grew up in uh, Christian schools, I don't think I heard the name Bill Gothard, but everybody who uh, he influenced most definitely. And he kind of set up a bunch of rules and principles, basic life principles that you need to follow. And this is kind of, a, kind of evidence of he, he lived in this certainty. I know exactly how to do these things, and he kind of put it into what you would call a formula. And the Hillsong is kind of a little bit opposite, but a lot of hypocrisy uh, in Hillsong. And these are not unique these are not just Hillsong and then the Gothard people. So every denomination, including the PCA, including the SBC, usually just throw the Southern Baptists under the bus. They'll just throw PCA under the bus as well. Because guess what? There's humans in every single one of these churches and every single one of these denominations. So you see a reason why some people may go through that, that deconstruction process. So I want to uh, look at the definition that we will go off of of what deconstruction is. Deconstruction could be something else, but this is what we're going to go off today. In short, deconstruction is a popular term that refers to the practice of revisiting and rethinking long-held beliefs, specifically in the Christian faith. So that doesn't sound as bad. It's like, okay, I, I'm just going to re-examine. I'm going to look at things. I'm going to look back at the Bible. I'm going to try to remember these things that I grew up learning or that I have come to know. And I think they came from the Bible. I think they're from God, but they may just be coming from people uh, that are around me. 
So we come to um, a, a, a kind of a, a place where we need to understand that there are some people that have gone through this abuse and there's reason to go through deconstruction and there's reasons to leave a church. There's unhealthy abuse, of course, and there's, people need to get out of those particular situations. But there's also definitely unhealthy ways to react. If something happens, if somebody says something to you uh, that offended you or uh, did something, guess what? That's what humanity does. <laughs> we're gonna make mistakes with one another. But we're not, we're not talking about that level of abuse, but if there's just normal human interaction, conflict, and things like that, there's definitely unhealthy ways to do it. And a healthy way of deconstruction is to strip everything you've always believed down to zero, which I don't think is possible, but to go back and re-examine with uh, an understanding of this abiding. Like, abide in Christ and ask questions. Abide in Christ and deconstruct, but don't just deconstruct, be deconstructing and reconstructing at the same time while abiding in Christ. And I'm gonna talk about that more as we go forward. So as this slide comes up, not this kind of abiding. If you guys are familiar, has anybody seen when the slide comes up? Um, you guys familiar with this? Has anybody seen this or recognize what this is from? Everybody, anybody see the Big Lebowski? Okay, this is the dude, the dude abides. So we're not talking about like that kind of abiding, like doing drugs in your basement and, and, and doing nothing and just waiting for things to happen. We're talking about a different type of abiding that is not just passive, that's not just accepting things as they come um, and reacting to things that happen. So then we come, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to the passage that um, Omar talked about last week and was, was preaching on, and that's 1 John 4, 14 through 16. And I'm gonna read it out of the Amplified Bible, and I think you'll see it kind of puts words in there a little bit more meaning, kind of puts commentary into the text, and it says this, so 1 John 4, 14 through 16. And besides, we ourselves have seen, have deliberately and steadfastly contemplated and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Anyone who confesses, acknowledge, owns that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides, lives, makes his home in him, and he abides, lives, makes his home in God. And we know and we understand, we recognize, conscious of, by observation and by experience, and believe, adhere to, and put faith in, and rely on the love God cherishes for us. God is love, and he who dwells and continues in love dwells and continues in God, and God dwells and continues in him. So we see in that, it's not just a passive, I'm just gonna let things go, it is an active choice to study, to ask questions, to get in community, to, uh, to study again, to ask questions, and be in community with other people that are also abiding, so that your deconstruction and your reconstruction comes out in a healthy way. We come to my story of deconstruction and, and questioning. I've had another sermon, I did a few months back, about my full story, this is not gonna be repeat, I didn't just put my slides in there, I'm gonna do it again. But I was raised in the Church of Christ. And, and I always say I was raised in the Church of Christ, not the cult one though. 
is what I usually say if you're familiar with that. But a lot of theological things that I disagree with. And uh, I just, uh, wherever Chad is at, um, this morning, when you, because of the l l less musical instruments that I heard, and it was just more singing, I'm just like, I, I automatically trigger, it's like, oh, that's the real worship, because that's without instruments. Because the Church of Christ worships without instruments. And I always ask questions like, okay, why do we not have instruments? Why, can, why do we have to just have our voices? That's kind of weird. I like music. Why can't we have instruments like these other people have instruments? And I ask questions like, why do we talk so much about baptism? Like, and not, not just baptism, like baptism for forgiveness of, this, for, of sins so that you can get the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Immersion fully, not infant baptism. So like why are we talking, like every single sermon has a lot to do with baptism. I always ask these questions. Why do we use grape juice instead of wine at communion? I know a lot of you probably have experienced very similar things. We have both wine and juice here, but some people have chosen, I'm only going to do juice because, and they have a certain set of beliefs that come behind that. So while they always have answers, they always go to the Bible, they usually say this, and you probably have heard this and experienced this as well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Or in the Church of Christ instance, they would say things like, speak where the Bible speaks, stay silent where the Bible's silent which is kind of hard for because the Bible's silent on lots of things, but it speaks to the principles that we can live out our lives under, um, but uh, there are things that it doesn't talk about. It doesn't talk about this and chairs and inside of a church building and things like that. So I would ask questions like, is my, and then, okay, is my Presbyterian friend going to go to heaven if she's not baptized? And then not only, what if they're on their way to getting baptized and they get hit by a bus or chandelier drops on them. Like, and I'm, these two things are always the same. When I talk to Church of Christ people, it's always a chandelier on a bus, have absolutely no idea. But if they're on their way to get baptized, and they'll say, well, that's up to God. I'm not, I'm not the one to judge, but we believe it's really clear in the Bible, and they especially go back to Acts 2.38, like what talks about repent and believe uh, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins so you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's one of those ones that is ingrained in my mind. And it's, it, that's verse, even if you have other verses in the, in the Bible talking a little bit differently about faith saving, um, that one's the one we compare things to. So those types of answers really influenced my longtime belief that certain questions were off limits. It was to be, if I was to be a strong Christian, I needed to believe strongly and I have no questions and no doubts. The belief, this belief pushed me into depression and anxiety, and it may have done the same for you, and your kind of squelching of your questions and not really answering them with good answers. Um, I just needed to believe strongly. This belief pushed many into depression, including myself. Uh, some of our loved ones have left church, and because of that, because of that shaming that's combined with other church abuse, or things that happen, people die natural disasters, the, the reason that we're having day of service because people need to be served, because people are hurting, that there's sin in the world, that there's damage, and uh, Christ has called us uh, to serve those people. So my question and doubt shaming led to a faith was, that was less about Jesus and more about finding a very intricately designed systematic theology to build up my certainty and not my faith. So. And this was not abiding. I literally went from the Church of Christ 
and we'll kind of talk about how I, how I went through different churches to find different answers and ask questions. Um, but m- my uh, certainty uh, was being built up instead of my abiding because I was building that systematic theology. So those unanswered questions, I went on a quest for the perfect theology, pushed me into a search for p- people outside the Church of Christ uh, to, to a church. So I landed in Calvary Chapel churches at the beginning. And I go, okay. I had both good and bad experiences at Calvary Chapel churches because there's human beings there. And the Church of Christ people immediately, because that was the first church that I went to after, they, okay, how can you do that? How can you go to this other church because this other church is not the right church? And I would say, well, I just get in my car and I drive. That's what I would say to them. And just like, oh, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. Like, and I would tell them, like, well, you ask that kind of a question, you're going to get that kind of an answer. Because this was my attitude. Because, like, how do you do that? I just, I, I, I believe I need to explore. I need to ask questions. I need to learn. I need to grow. And then it led me to a historically Baptist church that I will not name that's in San Diego. I had both good, uh, good and bad experiences there, not because they're Baptist necessarily, but I had good and bad experiences there. Went to a Methodist church because I was drawn there from a, for a job. And of course, that's going to cause questions because there's a lot of things different between Church of Christ and the, and the Methodist church. And then I come to a Presbyterian church. I actually come to Harbor and then accidentally find out that it's a Presbyterian church. So I have both good and bad experiences here because that's what we have. But God has been faithful uh, throughout my time in church in general. Uh, but I've always had that tendency to, to shore up my certainty instead of falling more in love with him. And it's been, more, it's been the, during this time at Harbor, even with its imperfections, that I finally feel free to not have all the right answers, to be curious, to ask questions. I, don't, I didn't feel shame for asking questions, and I slowly over time began to abide in him rather than try to build up my, build up my certainty. So we finally come to the passage, the very long passage that was read, thank you, uh, that's in your bulletin uh, in John 9, 24 through 34. And I really see in this passage that Jesus is honoring those who ask questions over those who are 100% certain. So it says, I'm just going to take it in chunks. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So I think in this passage, among other passages, you see this not only just certainty, but you see this arrogance of like, I have this down, I know the answers. So you have this arrogant, so arrogant certainty. So I call it the sin of arrogant certainty. This sin leads to demonizing others different than you, 
It leads to idolizing our theology. So like at our church, we would idolize a reformed theology. That's the one, no other answers anywhere else. Our culture could be our church culture, evangelical culture. Could be our culture of the United States. It could be a culture, all different types of cultures that are attached to ethnicity and everything like that. We can idolize our politics. We can idolize our country. And it will also, it will lead us to actually see Antichrist. This is the only time I'll, I'll talk about Antichrist. It would lead us to see Antichrist in all of these things that are different than us. Like, we can have d- disagreements, but when those disagreements and it has raised to the point of us demonizing or calling people names or actually thinking of them, they're the Antichrist, I need to do something about that Antichrist. They need to be battled, they're othered, uh, labeled, dehumanized. It brings us to where a lot of churches have this mentality of a war or a battle, and they're basically not warring against ideas. They've gone past warring of ideas. They go to attacking and battling with people. So this sin leads us to wage war against people created in God's image, and that's 100% of people. So demonizing people like presidents on the Democrat or Republican side or presidential candidates on either side. People like, and you've totally experienced this over the last two or three years, and you can have disagreements with this, but the demonization is what I'm talking about. People like Tom Hanks, Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, LGBTQ neighbors of ours, women who have chosen abortion, or like men, women, and children that are crossing the border. Like, we can have an, we can have a, an idea and, and believe strongly about what immigration needs to be or what sexual ethics needs to be. But when we take that and go from there and, and move out of love and start demonizing and attacking, and not, you don't want to call somebody antichrist. I don't think I've ever heard anybody call them that, but it, treating them like that, treating them like a demon. So I want to review in the several past sermons I've kind of talked about love your neighbor. I've also had a sweatshirt that there's no way I was going to wear today that talks about love your neighbor and it has a bunch of different versions of your neighbor, right? Love your Republican neighbor, love your Democrat neighbor, love your millennial neighbor, love your uh, conservative, love your liberal, love your Latinx, love your immigrant, love your disabled, love, like all, and then it has a blank at the bottom. It's basically saying, it, fill in the blank with any of these people that, that we have a tendency to, be, to d- d- demonize. So I just want to review some very simple things that we know uh, about what Jesus is calling us to do. So you can bring up that next slide for me. Even if it's not up, I'll talk about it. So I told you to love God, love your neighbor, love yourself, those who love you, your enemies. So that list just in case we always forget, that includes 100% of people. And loving doesn't, loving doesn't come alongside demonizing or othering or treating them as the antichrist. We need to love them. We can disagree and we can have discussions. That's not what I'm talking about. But that's the point. There's no wiggle room in there. We need to love people. And what I want to do now really quickly is go through and kind of compare and contrast this arrogant certainty that we've looked at with what the Bible presents as a humble confidence or trust or faith. Uh, and we come to Hebrews 11.1. 1. 
And this is in the message uh, paraphrase. The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. And you guys are thinking, like, I have it memorized in a, in a certain uh, translation, but I thought that would kind of get to it. it. The author of Hebrews is talking about this confident humility that is at the foundation of our life in Christ. He's not talking about a certainty, 100% certain that that takes away faith. And then we come to Romans 10, 17. So faith comes through hearing, or from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. And that's from the New Living Translation. So the, just the mere fact that our faith is coming from the presentation of the gospel to us, then we have a choice to be able to choose something that has been offered to us as a free gift. Should make us humble. It's not, not about us. It's about, it's about the gift. And our faith comes from the fact that we even have the gift to choose from. And then John 20, 29 says this. Jesus said, so you believe because you've seen with your own eyes, even better blessings are in store for those who believe without seeing. This is talking about um, what I call believing Thomas. Usually we see doubting Thomas, but he's, Jesus is not saying, oh no, you, you, there's something completely wrong with you for asking these questions and wanting to see me. He's asking questions like, can I see? Can I touch? If we, I guarantee you every single one of us would want to do that. If Jesus is here right in front of our face, I want to touch, I want to see, I want to actually experience Jesus uh, in the flesh. But better blessings are in store. There's blessings for Thomas, but there's also blessings for us that we haven't seen. We've seen it in other people. We've seen miracles and people moving each other's lives. We've seen it in creation. We've seen it all over the place. But we should be encouraged uh, by that type of questioning. We should see that as a model. God encouraged us to ask questions. So it comes, for, for me, I still have strong convictions. There's a reason that I'm at this particular church. I believe certain set of things. Of course, I have a systematic theology in my mind, like I'm trying to make sense of things. But hopefully I've got to a point where I'm not idolizing that theology and I'm, and I'm kind of holding what I believe with an open hand in the sense of, there's other people who believe other things than me. There's other churches out there. They're also indwelt with the Holy Spirit. I want to hear, I want to read, I want to listen to podcasts. I want to, I want to see those things. I want to see those perspectives and study and hold those things with an open hand. So you can still have strong beliefs and strong convictions, but don't be afraid to ask questions. And now we come to, I just want to very quickly go through um, there's a book that I just read, and I'm very similar to Omar, and then I'm reading lots of different books and trying to figure out, okay, if I, if I get asked to do a sermon, what particular book do I want to use? So I find this Curious Faith book. It's called A Curious Faith, The Question God Asks, We Ask, and We Wish Someone Would Ask Us by Lori Ferguson Wilbur. Totally highly recommended book. It is not a book. So uh, going through my systematic theology phases, I bought a book called The Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics. That's a super thick book by Norman Geisler. And it's just like, oh, this guy's the greatest. It has all the answers. Like if the Bible has a contradiction and things like that, I'm just like, oh, yes, yes, yes. And then I get asked a question that's not in there. Or I, I hear from another perspective. And I'm just like, oh, okay. 
This is not what this book is, is not that kind of a back and forth. Here's the question, here's 100% answers so I can get back up to certainty. But she says in her book, we allow space for questions like these during certain periods of the Christian life, the infant stages of belief, but soon we begin to demand certainty and obedience and surety instead of the tender vulnerability that's, that asking questions and answering them necessarily bring. And she also says, to ask a question is to hope that we currently, what we currently know isn't the whole story. It's a gamble that we deep down want to win. If we don't make space for curiosity in the Christian life, we'll become content with a one-dimensional God, a God made more in our image than the God who made us in his image. I was so thankful in our confession earlier, like that's what we do. We love to like, I want God to be in a box and I wanna, I wanna make him into my image instead of realizing that God's God uh, and we're not. I kinda wanna go into some examples of some of the questions that Lori talks about in her book. So the, 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 it comes in three categories, question God asks, we asks, and we hope that other people would ask us or God would ask us. So in Genesis 3.9, we're all familiar with the passage, uh, Genesis 3.9, where God's saying, where are you? Just in case you didn't know, God's not asking where are you because he doesn't know where they're at. He's actually asking them so they would actually say back to him, and they would hear it, like, oh, I'm, I'm away from you, I'm hiding from you, this is not the way it should be. And then another question, a little bit further on in Genesis. Who told you you were naked? What is this you have done? Another set of questions that God is asking. He wants them to contrast the truth of what he has said from the beginning to what the serpent said. Who told you? Like, where did you get this lie from? I want to be correcting those lies and, and answering those questions. And then we come to Job. And of course, we're all familiar with Job. Job and his friends saying, you must have sinned, you must have done this. And then Job uh, finally goes, okay, God, what, what's up with this? And then God goes into a long, multiple chapter of where, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did this? And I... I after studying it for a long time over time, I don't really see this as, at first I kind of thought God's being arrogant and trying to put him in his place. But really I think he's just saying, Job, just remember, you're the creation. I'm the creator. I've got this. I will make things right, especially in light of what happens after God talking about all these things. So these are questions that God asks us. And then we come to questions we ask and they're honest questions that we see modeled in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you guys are familiar with the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah is saying like, why was I born? Like, I'm, I'm called from God, I know this, why was I born? His accusation is this, I obeyed you, I spoke what you told me to speak, I did the thing you told me to do, and this is how you repay me? You duped me, and I was duped, you are not who I thought you were. Like. These are honest, and we see this in Psalms all over the place as well, and we'll go get to that. But like honest uh, kind of proclamations, questions, like what in the world is going on? I thought I was doing the right thing. Why am I experiencing these bad things? And a, another prophet, Isaiah, like where are you, God? I'm your prophet. Where are you? This is another quote from her book. This is what Isaiah was asking, I think. 
What kind of life is this, God? A life in which you're neither tender nor compassionate, neither zealous nor mighty, a life in which you don't show up. I'm just going to be honest with you, God. If that's what it is, my heart is going to get hard and my reverence is going to falter. My belief is going to dwindle because I don't need a God who just exists. I need a God who cares, who intervenes, who shows up, who makes right, who enacts justice, who extends mercy. And of course, that's a paraphrase of all this stuff he's saying. But we felt very similar things. Like, why is God silent in this particular issue? Why is this person dying? Why is this person abused? Where are you, God? And God is encouraging us to ask those questions. He doesn't smite them. It's like, you ask a question. How dare you ask this question? He responds in love. And then we come to Psalm 139 that we're familiar with. It's usually the fearfully and wonderfully made passage that we have up in our kitchens and things like that as this little poster alongside the Jesus footsteps in the sand poster, if you guys are familiar with that. So where can I go? And we all, I've read this before as seeing like, where can I go? Oh, this is so great that God is just everywhere. But this is what Lori says in her book. I don't envision David asking those questions while caught up in a euphoric moment of God's love and care for him. I envision him pacing in his bedroom, pounding his fist into the mattress, stifling his cries, God, I cannot escape your presence, and I cannot hide who I am at the core of from you. Where can I even go? I'm stuck. I'm in a corner. I'm found out. You've got me. Here I am, all of me. It's not a good feeling being found out, revealed, our true selves staring back at us. So I think there's, of course, there's great things that God is everywhere and everywhere present, but it's also those times you're just like, I wish God wasn't watching right now. In the middle of us sinning, in the middle of us struggling, please, God, I don't want you to see this right now. Because I, and sometimes it's this doubt shame thing, like I'm doubting this, and God's going, I know, it's all right. And he loves you through it. And we come to the questions we wish someone, especially God, would ask us. Uh, in John 8, that, that question uh, of the woman caught in adultery, who condemns you? The woman's sin was of secondary concern to Jesus at that moment. He wanted her to know a few things. First, he didn't condemn her. Second, he was under no illusion that her sins were worse than those of the Pharisees who threw out his feet. Third, Jesus wanted her to say it right out loud, no one, sir, no one condemns me. He doesn't, they don't, I don't. So there's so many questions all over the Bible. It's like, it's like more questions than statements when you, when, you, when you really look at it, especially from Jesus. Uh, and Jesus is asking in this particular case in Matthew 6, are you not much more valuable than the birds or the flowers? I feed the birds, I clothe the fields, I do all these things. And uh, she says this in her chapter, knowing we are valuable to God means we will care for wounds as we discover them. It means we will submit to the whole healing process, even the painful parts that feel like antiseptic or physical therapy. It means we will not pretend hard things don't hurt or emotions aren't real or death doesn't sting. It means we will weep when we are sad, laugh when we feel joy, have silence when we don't have words and shout when it's right. It means we will acknowledge our own grief and attend to it. It means each generation becomes a little more healed and whole as we go until the whole world is reconciled to Christ uh, in wholeness. And I think we, uh, Omar touched on this a little bit. Uh, in John uh, 21, uh, the question to Peter, do you love me? It was either last week or another sermon or something. I think we talked about it. But uh, Lori says in her chapter about this, this section, this section about Peter. God's love for us, 
even among all his questions for us and ours for him, was there before the foundations of the earth and will be there throughout all eternity. Stayed, solid, immovable, unshakable. He asks if we love him because he knows without question he first loved us. So reader and friend, do you love him? Can you love him? Will you love him? It's okay if the answer is I want to love him. I I want to want to love him. It's okay if the answer is I still need some time before I think I can love him or I need to believe he loves me before I can love him. All those answers are okay. There's a part of me that's desperate for you to know how deeply and profoundly he loves you. But I've been where you are before and I know there's no way through all these questions but to live them all the way through. This, these particular passages, this particular book is not just for people that are struggling with deconstruction. It's an encouragement to all of us to look back and say, God wants us to answer to ask those questions. We're not always gonna have the right answer, the answer at the right timing, or exactly, exactly perfect the way we want it, but that type of curiosity, instead of arrogant certainty, which some of us do within this church, other churches, because there's human beings in all these churches, we have this arrogant certainty, but what we're asked to be led by is this questioning curiosity instead of arrogant uh, certainty. So we see all, all over the Bible, like we've said, uh, that there's questions that are modeled. And we, as those people created in God's image, are designed to ask questions. We're curious, and that curiosity is what brings us closer to God. And then we come full circle here at the end in John 9, right at the end of the passage. I want to look back at some of those questions um, that Jesus is asking and those answers and those kind of back and forth response. So John 9, 35 through 39. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? For, like when you, if they ask us that, it's like, oh, that's a little confusing, what does a what Son of Man mean? But he comes back with, who is he, sir? The man asked, not like, oh, can you define that term for me? But like, who is he? The man asked, we have, must have some understanding. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus answers this. Jesus said, you have now seen him, In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And then Jesus comes back and says, for judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those will see will become blind. And we read that word judgment. For me, every time that I've read it before, I read that word judgment, I'm thinking, that kind of sounds condemning. We know it's not because he says, I don't come to condemn the world, but For judgment I've come into the world. And he's referring to a passage that usually is used when we talked about last week about dispensationalism and antichrist and left behind and Tim LaHaye. Probably Tim LaHaye wasn't mentioned, but I'll mention him now. The late great planet Earth, all these different books that really focus in on Revelation bring up this passage. This is Daniel 7.13. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man, a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So he's literally saying, like, I am this son of man that we're talking about. And he's believing it. He's just like, who is he? He's this person. Okay, I believe because he's experienced Jesus in a real tangible way from birth being blind. And I think it's fitting to end on this passage in Mark, in Mark 9, 20 through 24. And this is... uh, 
a, a great passage and an encouragement uh, to me, and hopefully it's an encouragement to you as well, talking um, here. So they brought him, when the Spirit saw Jesus, a man is bringing uh, his son uh, to be healed, to have a demon uh, exercised. It's immediately threw the boy out into convulsion. After this, the Spirit saw Jesus. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has, it, has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us if you can. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father explained, explained, exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And I think that's, that's where I'm at. I believe. I'm here. <laughs> I'm preaching. I hope I believe. But I'm always in this place of back and forth, unbelief. I don't know about this. I'm struggling with this. And God is calling you to bring those questions to him, that curiosity to him. Let's pray.